All right, if you have your Bible, you can go ahead and turn to the book of Isaiah. Theoretically, we are covering 39 chapters this morning. Uh, let's just pretend that we did, and uh, we'll cover a few that we can. Um, we're in the middle of what we're calling one big story, telling the whole Bible, the grand scheme, the ultimate story in 50 weeks. And so uh, today uh, we're in the book of Isaiah. So the story so far is this. God existed before all things, and he created the world. He created it perfect. Uh, because why? Because God is perfect. He's perfect. He's holy. He's righteous. He is good. And so God created it uh, and us in his image, right? He created it perfect and holy and righteous and good. And it was this perfect place for humanity to have this vibrant, life-giving relationship with God, right? And God gave us some instructions. Hey, here's how you are to relate to me because I'm holy. Here's how you are to relate to each other. And he gave it to Adam and Eve, our father and mother. And they couldn't keep it, right? They couldn't even keep it for very long. And they broke that relationship. They decided, like we talked about a couple weeks ago, they knew what was wise, not what God thought. Right? They knew better than God how to live in this world we call that sin, right? Sin broke everything. It shattered our relationship with God. It shattered how we relate to everything here on earth. And nothing works like it used to. And because God is holy, because God is perfect, he had to do the thing that maybe we struggle with. He had to punish sin. He had to push them out of the garden, Adam and Eve. He had to separate himself or them from him. And that doesn't seem like a God of love, but he had to because he's holy, right? Because he's perfect. It doesn't make him not loving at all. No, it's a part of his character. It's a part of who he is. But God didn't want to stay that way. He didn't want it to stay that way. He didn't want to be separated from us forever. And so what did he do? He wanted to bring us back to relationship with him. So he, he started this plan, and he writes this story. That's the whole Old Testament and the whole New Testament, for that matter. And he begins to write this story of redemption. That's the grand scheme, right? He chooses a man, Abraham, and he chooses his family. And he says, I'm going to use you to bless all the families of the earth. Through your family, I'm going to bring redemption. And he gives them, Abraham and his descendants, his word, right? Here's how you are to relate to me. Here's how you are to treat each other, right? He gives them his word. And just like Adam and Eve, their father and mother, they couldn't keep it, right? They thought they knew what was best. And so over and over and over in this story, time and again, humanity rejects relationship with God and chooses its own way. We call it sin. And at different times in the Old Testament and in the New Testament and in our day, God, the holy, perfect one, has to come and judge sin. There are, today, honestly, is not happy clappy, and I'm like, ah, kind of cringing, right? Because today is, in Isaiah, today is about sin and judgment, right? That part of who we believe God to be as he has revealed himself is that he is holy and perfect, and one of the things that that means is sometimes he has to come down and judge sin, and ultimately, in the end, God will come and he will judge sin. Sin. That is not a message that will get you a lot of followers today. Like, 
we put up a sign that says, you will be judged outside. It's not a great church growth strategy. It's true, right? It's true, but I don't think people are going to come wandering in going, hmm, how can I be judged today? Can't wait for that, right? We seek to not be judged. But here's part of the point. God is always a God of love, and he is always a God of judgment against sin. He is both of those things at the same time, always and forever. And so even when there is judgment, God is working his plan to bring redemption. And we're going to see that today in Isaiah. God will be successful in this plan. We see it in Jesus. I'm telling you the end of the story. And in Jesus, when Jesus lives this perfect life and he dies on the cross, we see both of those, what we would call extremes, right? That God is a God of judge against sin and God is a God of love. On the cross, we see both of those, right? That God in one moment puts all the sin of the world on Jesus and he rightly and justly kills Jesus. Why? Because he represents everything that is against God in that moment. And in the same moment... He is loving, right? Why? Because he put our sin on Jesus to show us what? Love and grace, right? He is both things at all times forever. He is both the just and the justifier. He is both the judge and the loving, gracious father. He's the giver of judgment, and he's also the giver of grace. And we can't separate those. So today we find ourselves in Isaiah, and Isaiah is... Uh, kind of the prince of the Old Testament prophets, right? He is uh, the big prophet in the Old Testament. It's the second most quoted book in the New Testament, which means that in Jesus' day, they knew Isaiah almost better than any other book of the Bible except for Psalms because they sang it all the time. And I think the reason for it is this, is that it describes God in a, in a complete and well-rounded way. It doesn't uh, skimp on his grace, and it doesn't skip on his holiness. It doesn't skip on his love, and it doesn't skimp on his judgment, right? He is God in all ways at all times, and Isaiah presents that to us. It is a well-rounded view of who God is. Because today, what we often do, if, if you are new to this, we, where do we point people if they become a Christian? Where are we going to tell them to read? Are we going to tell them to go to Isaiah 1 to talk about judgment? Probably not. Probably we're going to point them to John. Let's talk about some love, right? Where are we going to point people? We're going to point them to the New Testament, right? Because many people in our day think, ah, the God in the Old Testament, he's a little bit angry. He's a little bit mad, and he just kind of flies off the handle sometimes, right? He just, he just can't stand it, and he just wipes out nations and wipes out people, and he's just, he's just a God of judgment in the Old Testament. But many people think, oh, by the time Jesus comes around, he's kind of matured, right? He's become this God of love and grace and acceptance and all these things. And we just sang it today that God is the same yesterday, today, and forever. The God of the Old Testament is the same God as the God of the New Testament, right? God hasn't changed. See, we want to, oftentimes, we want to think of God just as as, as we think he should be, right? God, you're just a God of love and acceptance and, and just take everybody as they are, right? And that's true, right? We don't want to think of God as a God that sometimes has to judge sin, that sometimes has to bring punishment 
for things that are rebellious against him. We just want to kind of forget about that and just paint God how we want him to be. But that's what? That's creating God in our image. And that's the exact opposite of what's happened. God created us in his image. And he has revealed to us who he is. And there are times, like Isaiah, where he brings judgment on sin. See, he's always been holy. He's always been just. He's always been a judge. And he's always been loving. And he's always been gracious. And he's always been kind and merciful. He is all those things all at once. One attribute of God does not diminish outweigh or cancel any other attribute of God. As much as we would like to think God is just this, no, he is all of those things. And we're going to see that today in Isaiah. We're going to see both what we would call extremes. They're not extremes. They're who God is. It's, it's in one section God's going to describe, man, there's going to be this coming judgment because you are a sinful, rebellious people. And in the same section, just verses later, he will say, but one day I'm going to redeem you. One day I'm going to make all things right. One day I'm going to fix all of this. We see both at the same time, right, that there is judgment and that there is love. So today, Isaiah, just a little context for you. Isaiah is speaking, as we talked about last week, there's, there's two kingdoms. There's the northern kingdom, the top ten tribes, and then there's the southern kingdom where Jerusalem is. It's also the tribe of Benjamin, and that's where... Uh, that's really where there is any sense of worship of God in this time, right? And Isaiah is a prophet to the southern kingdom. He's not a prophet to the north. And during uh, his time, there are a number of other prophets. You can see them on your sheets if you've got one of those. Hosea, Joel, Amos, Jonah, and Micah. And those are great books. Um, there's a one-sentence summary on your sheet. We're not going to get to cover them because they're prophesying a very similar message at this same time. Um, but you're welcome to, to kind of peek at that. Um, during the time that Isaiah is prophesying, the northern kingdom, the top ten tribes, not where he's at, because of their sin, God sends judgment, and they are completely wiped out. The Assyrians come, they wipe out everything, and they take away prisoners. Right? Isaiah's in the south, and he's prophesying of a judgment that will come and it won't come for 150 years. But what he's doing in Isaiah, the first 39 chapters, is he is calling them out for their sin. And I, can I tell you, this is not fun for me today, okay? To stand up here and say this, right? It's not necessarily the most happy, clappy, enjoyable sermon. You're probably going to leave and not want to talk to me. And I get that. Um, but it's true. There are times in this story where sin has to be called out. And we have to deal with the reality that in the end, God will judge us to see whether we are against him or we are for him. And that is not a message of hate. In our day, if you call people out on what they did wrong, you hate them. You're a bigot. You're against them, right? No, it's actually the most loving thing I could do today. I'm not, call, I'm not trying to pin you down and say, I can't believe how bad of a sinner you are. No, it would be unloving of me and it'd be unloving of you to not share that message with the world to say that one day you will be judged. There is a God who rules and reigns and he will come and judge. And it would be unloving to say, whose side are you on? Whose side, right? So let's start. Let's jump into Isaiah 1. We're going to read a, a bunch today, so just hold on. It'll be on the screen so you can follow in your Bible. Isaiah 1. Let's read one through eight to start. 
me pray first before I jump in. God, uh, we need you today. I, I resonate with that last song, I'm not enough unless you come. And so I pray that, that you would um, speak in ways that I can't even. God, that you would uh, help us to understand the fullness of who you are today. God, help us to deal with the fact that one day our lives, um, we will have to give an account before you, just like these people, God. God, and may we see that the only way we will uh, survive that is to be in you, for you to be ours and us to be yours, God. So God, help me to explain this clearly, God. We love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen. All right, Isaiah 1, 1 through 8. This is the vision of Isaiah, the son of Amos, which he saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem in the days of, these are kings, Uzziah, Jotham, Ahaz, and Hezekiah, kings of Judah. Hear, O heavens, and give, hear, give ear, O earth, for the Lord has spoken. Children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. This is what God is saying to the people. The ox knows its owner and the donkey its master's crib, but Israel does not know. My people do not understand. All sinful nation, a people laden with iniquity, offspring of evildoers, children who deal corruptly. They have forsaken the Lord. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They are utterly estranged. Why will you still be struck down? Why will you continue to rebel? The whole head is sick and the whole heart faint. From the sole of the foot even to the head, there is no soundness in it, but bruises and sore and raw wounds. They are not pressed out or bound up or softened with oil. Your country lies desolate, your cities are burned with fire, in your presence foreigners devour your land. It is desolate, as overthrown by foreigners. And the daughter of Zion is left like a booth in the vineyard, like a lodge in a cucumber field, like a besieged city. I don't know what a lodge in a cucumber field is, but the picture is pretty clear. You, you my children, have abandoned me. God, the Father, is crying out to them, saying, I, I raised you, I brought you up, and I showed you the way, and I have shown grace and mercy over and over. And what have you done in return? It says, you have rejected me. You've chosen any other thing besides a relationship with me. And what is he saying? He's saying, he's prophesying that your sin, this rejection of me, is going to lead to what? Total and utter being wiped out. Judgment. God is going to send judgment on them. In this same moment, verse 9, in this same moment as we see this judgment, which is ugh, right? In the same moment, we also see God at work. We also see his, his love and his mercy and forgiveness. Verse 9 says, If the Lord of hosts had not left us a few survivors, we should have been like Sodom, and we should have become like Gomorrah. Hear the word of the Lord, you rulers of Sodom. Give ear to the teaching of our God, you people of Gomorrah. What's he saying? In this, in this judgment, he's prophesying that one day you're going to be wiped out. But he's saying even then, there will be some that remain. There's always a remnant. There's always hope. There's always some. Even in the midst of the many, 
that will believe and that will repent and that will turn and be saved, right? God is not a God who just simply wants to wipe us out. He would have wiped every single person out if it was that way, right? No, but he chooses to save some, and we get a glimpse of that here. He, he chooses to save a remnant. Verse 11, his complaint against the people goes on. He says, what to me is the multitude of your sacrifices, says the Lord. I've had enough of burnt offerings of rams and the fat of well-fed beef. I do not delight in the blood of bulls or of lambs or of goats. When you come to appear before me, who is required of you this trampling of my courts? Bring no more vain offerings. Incense is an abomination to me. New moon and Sabbath and the calling of convocations. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. Your new moons and your appointed feasts my soul hates. They become a burden to me. I'm weary of bearing them. When you spread out your hands, I will hide my eyes from you, even though you make many prayers. I will not listen. Your hands are full of blood. Right? Real happy clappy, right? Real motivational this morning, right? What is he saying? He's saying all of your sacrifices, all of your feasts, all of your, your gatherings, just like we're gathered this morning to, to worship God. He says, I'm tired of them. I'm worn out by how much you come to me in your, your religion. Why? 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 Didn't God tell them to sacrifice and do Sabbaths and all these things? Why is he so mad of them doing what he told them to do? Well, it's because of what he says at the end. Your hands are full of blood. He says it in verse uh, 13. I cannot endure iniquity and solemn assembly. He's saying what? You are two-faced. You, you, you're one thing here and another thing there. Yeah, here you're all about, man, I got my goat. Let's sacrifice it. Let's get right with God. But then the rest of the week, what? The rest of the month, what? How are you living, right? He says, you're two-faced. And he's saying, I cannot bear it. It's a father struggling with his sons and his daughters being one thing to his face and another thing behind his back. And God, who we would describe as patient and loving and kind and merciful, at this point he goes, I am tired of bearing it. You. It's not necessarily how we present God. But what he says is your hypocrisy, your two-facedness is detestable to me. I cannot endure it any longer. And so there will come judgment. Verse 16. Again, we get a taste of there's judgment, but there's also salvation at the same time. There's, there's, there's a, a, a negative message, right, that sin will be punished, but in the same breath, in the same next breath, there is this sense of hope. And here's what he says, verse 16 through 20. He says, wash yourselves, make yourselves clean, remove the evil of your deeds from before my eyes, cease to do evil, learn to do good, seek justice, correct oppression, bring justice to the fatherless, plead the widow's cause. Come, now, let us reason together, says the Lord. Though your sins are like scarlet, they shall be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they shall become like wool. If you are willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. What's the message? There's, there's this sense of hope, right? You can be washed clean. 
You can be forgiven. You can have your sins washed away like scarlet. And what does he say? How do we do that? He says, repent. Turn from your two-facedness. Turn from your hypocrisy and turn back to the Lord. No longer chase after these things that don't satisfy, that are detestable to me. He says, no, repent. Return to the Lord and what? You will be saved. The, the, the picture is clear. Their religion, their, their repetitive sacrifices and all those other things will not save them. The only thing that will save them is what? Returning to the Lord. A relationship with the Lord. See, at the same time that God is, is promising judgment, he's saying, no, but there's a way out. There's a way out. Yes, yes, the, the message is bad. That sin will lead to death, but there is hope, right? If you repent and return to the Lord, you can find life, right? In this same breath, he is both things. And verse 19 and 20 sum up the message of Isaiah, maybe better than any other place in the first 39 chapters. He says this, if you are willing and obedient, you shall eat of the good of the land. But if you refuse and rebel, you shall be eaten by the sword. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. He's saying, repent. Or you will be wiped out. Right? And so if your ears today, this message is the same for us, right? It's no different, right? If you continue in sin, if you live a life that is totally against God, even to faith, that, that you're one thing here and something out there, what's going to happen? The message is clear. And we don't like to talk about this, but the reality is clear. What will happen? You will die and spend eternity separated from God. But there is a way out. What do, what do we have to do? Repent. Return to the Lord. Repent. Come walk in the light of the Lord. Repent and walk towards God. He desires to wash you clean and free and save you, right? In the same message, right, of, of judgment that is to come, there is a message of hope. We are not bigots, okay? We are not people who hate others because of their sin. We are not just out there to put people in their place or to condemn people. The only reason we proclaim judgment is so that we can proclaim hope. That you don't have to die forever and be separated from God. You will if you don't know Jesus. But we proclaim what? Hope in the midst of judgment. Because God is both things at the same time. And if he's made us in his image, we should be both things at the same time. Being truthful about there is judgment to come. But being positive and hopeful to say there is a way out of it. Repent. Return to the Lord. That's the message of Isaiah. Let's keep going. And I want you to see more of this hope. Isaiah 2. Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. Y'all mad at me yet? Okay, y'all good? Y'all surviving? If you need to just laugh or, you know, smile or something, this would be a good time. Isaiah 2, 1 through 5. It says, the word of Isaiah, the word that Isaiah, the son of Amos, saw concerning Judah and Jerusalem. It said, it shall come to pass in the latter days that the mountain of the house of the Lord shall be established as the highest of the mountains. And shall be lifted up above the hills, and all the nations shall flow to it. And many people shall come and say, Come, let us go up to the house of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways, and that may, we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go the law and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between the nations and shall 
decide disputes for many peoples. And they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nations shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. In the midst of this message, right, this dark, judgmental message that Isaiah is proclaiming, he gives them this picture, God gives them this picture of, of what will come one day. Yes, there's judgment coming, but one day, he says, that the mountain of the house of the Lord will be the highest, right? That all of the nations shall flow to it. That all of the nations will want to come and learn who is God and what does he require of us, right? That was not the case in their day. This was a picture of something to come. That one day Israel and one day God would establish his kingdom and all the nations of the earth would come and worship God there. He's trying to give them some motivation, right? Do you want to be used by God? Repent and return to the Lord. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord so that one day God will establish us as a witness to all the nations. But it's also got this other side, right? If you don't, if you remain in your sin, then you will be wiped out. So this is a glorious picture of what Israel will become one day. And it's meant to be motivation. There will be a day when God makes all things right. There will be a day when God fixes everything that is broken because of sin. And there won't be any need for swords, right? What does it say? He said all the swords will be bent into plowshares. Instead of weapons, we need gardening tools. It says all the spears will be uh, beaten into pruning hooks. Right? We, don't need, we don't need weapons anymore. No, what do we need? We need agricultural tools. Because one day there will be no more war. One day there will be no more strife. One day God will make all things right. His word is true, and it will remain true. If they follow, verse 5, O house of Jacob, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let me tell you, no matter how bleak things look right now, no matter how broken your world is, no matter how jacked up or messed up your situation is you can take hope if you're in christ that one day god will make all things right one day god will fix it all you won't there won't be any more strife or war there will be peace there will be wholeness and completeness right and so what should we do verse five come let us walk in the light of the lord right no no don't don't go looking for life in all of created things. Don't go looking for life in relationships on earth or possessions or any other thing. He says, no, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. He's saying the only way to life is to walk with God because that's what we were created for. And when we seek after anything else, we're not going to find it. We're going to find brokenness because that's the world. He's saying, come, let us walk in the light of the Lord, not in the darkness any longer. Let's keep going, verse 6. Let's read all the way to 22. It says, For you have rejected your people for the house, of, the house of Jacob, because they are full of things from the east, and of fortune tellers like the Philistines, and they strike hands with the children of foreigners. Their land is filled with silver and gold, and there is no end to their treasures. Their land is filled with horses, and there is no end to their chariots. Their land is filled with idols, 
They bow down to the work of their hands, to what their own fingers have made. So man is humbled, and each one is brought low. Do not forgive them. You see clearly that they have sought to find life in all sorts of things, things from the east, things from the Philistines, gold, horses, chariots. They've sought their, their satisfaction and their pleasure and their everything in things created. And God says, no, you've missed the point. It's to come walk in the light of the Lord. Come walk in relationship with me. And he prophesies of the day of the Lord, the day of the Lord's judgment. And here's what he says, starting in verse 10. He says, enter into the rock and hide in the dust from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty. The haughty looks of man shall be brought low and the lofty pride of man shall be humbled and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. For the Lord of hosts has a day against all that is proud and lofty, against all that is lifted up and it shall be brought low. Against all the cedars of Lebanon, it's a tall thing, right? Lofty and lifted up, and against all the oaks of Bashan, against all the lofty mountains and all the uplifted hills, against every high tower, against every fortified wall, against the ships of Tarshish, and against all the beautiful craft. And the haughtiness of man shall be humbled, and the lofty pride of man shall be brought low, and the Lord alone will be exalted in that day. And the idols shall utterly pass away, and the people shall enter the caves of the rocks and the holes of the ground from before the terror of the Lord, from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. In that day, mankind will cast away their idols of silver and their idols of gold, which they've made for themselves to worship, to the moles and to the bats, to enter the caverns of the rocks and the clefts of the cliffs, from before the terror of the Lord and from the splendor of his majesty when he rises to terrify the earth. Stop regarding man in whose nostrils is breath, for of what account is he? Isaiah gives us this incredible picture of the day of the Lord. This, this phrase, the day of the Lord, is a common in prophecy. It's common in the New Testament too, and it, it means... What? The day of the Lord's judgment. The day of the Lord's returning, right? It's the day that the Lord kind of steps out of being away from us and he enters into our world and he brings what is right and good. Which means that he also gets rid of what is not right, what is wrong, and what is evil. The day of the Lord is a, I don't know if you picked up on it, it's a terrible day. It's a day where you're going to try to go look if you aren't in Christ. You're going to try to go look for a cave or a crevice. You're going to try to hide. You're going to, you're going to try to get anywhere you can away from the presence of the Lord. You're going to try to run and hide. And he says there will be no place to hide because why? Everything that is high will be brought low. Everything that is proud will be humbled. Everything that thinks that it is something will be nothing on that day. Again, a very happy, clappy message. Uh, the direct fulfillment of this prophecy is when Babylon comes and wipes out Jerusalem. It's 150 years from when he prophesies this. Babylon comes and completely destroys the temple, completely destroys all of everything, and takes them away to captivity. But there's also a secondary fulfillment to this, that one day Jesus will return. Right? The day of the Lord is, has yet to come, and Jesus will return. And on that day, yes, he will make everything right. Right? 
But to do that, it means what? He has to get rid of everything that is wrong. To make everything right is to get rid of everything that is wrong. It will be a terrible day for those who are not in Christ. There will be no safety found anywhere but for those who are in Christ. No tower, no building, no career, no, no influence, nothing will protect you on that day. It says no created thing will remain. Except if you're in the Lord. Except if you're in Christ. And so the message is this, people. I, I don't love preaching this, but it's so true. There is a day coming when Jesus Christ will return and he will judge and he will wipe out everything that is rebellious and against him. So the question today is very, very simple. Are you in Christ? Because if you are, praise God, you're safe, right? You have a place of refuge. It's in Christ because he died and he paid your sin. But if you're not, there is no place of safety besides Jesus. There is no place that you can flee to. So what's the message today? Repent. Turn from your life of sin and anything that, that is against God and come walk in the light of the Lord. Repent, for the kingdom of heaven is at hand. I want you to see one more, Isaiah 6, and then we're done. Isaiah 6, Isaiah gets a little taste of the day of the Lord. He actually gets to see a vision of God. And let's see how he responds in that day. Isaiah 6, 1 it says, in the year that King Uzziah died, I saw the Lord sitting upon a throne, high and lifted up, and the train of his robe filled the temple. Above him stood the seraphim, angels. Each had six wings. With two he covered his face. With two he covered his feet, and with two he flew. And one called to another and said, holy, holy, holy is the Lord of hosts. The whole earth is full of his glory. And the foundations of the thresholds shook at the voice of him who called and the house was filled with smoke and here's how Isaiah responds when he sees God he says and I said woe is me for I am lost I am a man of unclean lips and I dwell in the midst of a people of unclean lips for my eyes have seen the king the lord of hosts he cowers and Isaiah is a man who knows God Isaiah is not a sinful man, and he cowers at the sight of the Lord. It's just like we just read, that the day of the Lord is a terrible and frightening and wonderful thing, right? To see God is to be brought low, just like Isaiah is. So what does God do? Verse 6. It says, Then one of the seraphim flew to me, and having his hand in his hand a burning coal that he had taken with tongs from the altar... And he touched my mouth and said, Behold, this has touched your lips. Your guilt is taken away and your sin atoned for. When Isaiah gets a picture of the Lord, the day of the Lord, he is brought low. And God does something amazing in that moment. He touches him with a coal, which is symbolic, right? That, that his lips are now clean. That he can speak, because that's what he said. My lips are not clean. How could I speak? He, he is atoned for. He is... He is made right. He is fixed. There is a price that is paid to make him right at one with God. See, God is a God of justice and judgment, but he's also a God of love. 
And yes, the message is repent and turn from your sin and walk in the light of the Lord. Why? Because there is hope. There is salvation in our God. He's not just a God who wants to wipe us all out and kill us. No, he wants us to come back to relationship with him. And he will do anything. And he did do everything to pay that price so that we could no longer walk in our sin and things that will kill us. Instead, we can walk in the light of the Lord. Isaiah, in this moment, is a picture of that, that he, he turns from himself, he cowers, and he turns to God, and he is atoned for, he is saved, and he does one more thing, it says, then go tell the world, verse 8 through 13, Isaiah says, I, I heard the, vo the voice of the Lord saying, whom shall I send and who will go for us? Then I said, here I am, send me. And he said this, God told Isaiah this, go and say this to my people. Keep on hearing, but do not understand. Keep on seeing, but don't perceive. Make the heart of this people dull and their ears heavy and blind their eyes. Lest they see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their hearts and turn and be healed. Right? Do you see the picture? He's saying, look, they're not going to hear you. They're not going to see it. They're not going to understand it. Their hearts are dull. They will not respond to your message. And Isaiah cries out. He says, then I said, how long, O Lord? And he said, until cities lie waste without inhabitant and houses without people and the land is a desolate waste. And the Lord removes people far away and the forsaken places are many in the midst of the land. What does he say? He's saying, look, you're going to go and proclaim this message, Isaiah. Tell them, repent, come walk in the light of the Lord, and you're going to fail. They're not going to repent and walk in the light of the Lord. He promises Isaiah failure in this moment. He says, no, -uh, they're not going to listen. They're not going to hear, and it won't stop until judgment comes. Right? I've had enough of this. We don't have that. We aren't guaranteed failure, actually. Isaiah was. God tells, tells him, go, tell them to repent and return to the Lord, and they're not going to listen to you. We actually have the opposite. God has given us a message of salvation that we go out and we say, look, return to the Lord. He wants a relationship with you. He proved that by sending his son Jesus to die in your place. You can have life. You can seek it in all these other things, but you won't find it. Come, return to the Lord. And God has given us this message, and he has said, look, you will be successful. Some will hear. Some will believe in their hearts, and some will be saved. Right? We are not like Isaiah without hope. Isaiah had to go share this message, and the people would be totally wiped out because they did not repent in return. We actually get the opposite. If we stand up, if we share this with our friends, if we proclaim the truth that God wants to bring people back to relationship with him, that he has sent his son Jesus to die so that you don't have to die, he says people will hear that, they'll believe in their hearts, and they will be saved. We have promise of success. So as we finish up, I hope today, man, this is heavy, right? Yeah, Ugh. this is heavy, but it's true, right? And it would, it would not be um, hateful of us to share this message. 
It would not be evil of us to go out and tell somebody that they, in their sin, will spend eternity separated from God. That is not hateful. I hope you hear in my voice me pleading with you today. I'm not trying to condemn us. I'm not trying to put us in our place, but I want us to know the truth. The greatest act of love is not acceptance. The greatest act of love is not just taking people for what they are and leaving them there. The greatest act of love is pointing them to the truth. And if we really believe that this is who God says he is, then he is a God of love, yes. And he desires to offer forgiveness and grace and mercy. But he is also a God of judgment. And the day of the Lord will come. And there will be a day that God will judge. And he will judge fairly and rightly. And the only way we can be in him is is to put our faith in Jesus. So I don't know where you're at today. I don't know if you're ready for the day of the Lord. I don't know if you know Jesus as your Savior or if you're just like the people of Israel that are two-faced. I don't know if you're one thing here and another thing there, doing church because it's good for business, but really having no love for God or, or being a part of a community because you get friendship, but not really caring about God and his love for humanity that he would send Jesus to die for us. I don't know where you're at. I don't know if you're two-faced or if you're genuine. But the truth uh, of all this is, because I love you, I will tell you the truth. If you're not in Christ, you will not spend eternity with God. And that's the message that Isaiah proclaims over and over. Repent. Come, let us walk in the light of the Lord. Let us return to the Lord, for that's where life is found. That's what we were created for. Why would we seek it in anything else? You can have life today. You can put your faith in Jesus, and he will save you. He will, he will rescue you, literally, from the judgment that is to come. He will give you what he earned by being perfect. And he will take on your sin, what you earned by being sinful. He offers a free swap. All you have to do is trust him, right? Let me pray for us. God, thank you for the truth of your word, God. Is, as, as heavy as it may be, God, what is good for us is to know the truth, uh, not to just gloss over who you are and pretend that all is well. No, the reality is there is a day that you're coming, God, and so we pray that we would be in you, that we would know Christ as our Savior. God, you've offered that, and you've paid the ultimate price to bring us back to relationship with you. So, God, I pray that if anybody today doesn't know Jesus, God, that they they would feel a sense of urgency to make that right. They would feel a call from you, God, to come and be in the family of God. God, we need you, and and we trust you, God, and we're going to sing, and we're going to worship. God, I pray that if, if anybody needs to talk, if anybody needs, I'll be here. There are other men and women that are here and can talk and and counsel, God, but I pray that you would help us just like you say to come walk in the light of the Lord. May we not be two-faced. May we not reject you, God, but may we walk in your light. God, because that's where life is found. Nowhere else. God, we love you. We pray all this in your son's name. Amen.